Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 74. There's a lot of resources out there, but nothing beats boots on the ground, a ranch near you with someone who's successful in making their living. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating costs. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. On today's show, we have Dan Glenn from Deep Grass Grazers. It's a wonderful show. We talk about his journey. We wrap up a little bit with heifer and bull development on grass. You don't want to miss this one. Before we talk to Dan, 10 seconds about my farm. And rather than talk about my farm, I'm talking about what I'm doing this weekend. If you're going to the South Pole Field Day and sell, you, you'll probably see me there. So come over and say hi. I will be wearing a grazing grass shirt. We'll look see if anybody else is. But if you're over there, come say hi when you see me. I'm excited to travel down to Albertville, Alabama. So um, I think Teddy Gentry speaking and Greg Judy speaking. So those will be interesting to hear. So looking forward to it. I'll let you know about it next week. Don't forget about the Grazing Grass community on Facebook. We've added the Grazing Grass community on Facebook as a place for grazing grass discussions. And it is growing very quickly. You can just get on Facebook and do a search for Grazing Grass Community. And it'll pop up and just join. And we have a couple of questions on there that's not required because the required questions drive me crazy. But I do appreciate it when you take a moment to fill them out. It helps me know you a little bit better. We have great visions in the future for it. Thank you. Enough of that. Let's talk to Dan. Dan, we will welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited for you to join us today. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Always uh, fun to speak with other people interested in uh, ranching and uh, and making uh, the soils a little bit better than we found them. Very true. And Dan, to get started, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? I grew up here on the farm that I find myself on now. Only child, only grandchild, son and grandson of farmers on both sides of my family. Growing up, really had no interest in being a farmer or on the farm. I had my had my head in a book, you know, went off to school and studied English and journalism and 
you get an English degree and you have the freedom to do whatever you want to with your life. I got the opportunity to do a lot of different things from catering to bartending to landscaping. I did a brief stint in, uh, in St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands where I helped found a school of, of sustainable agriculture and then had the opportunity to move back to that family farm. And, and even when I moved back, I wasn't sure exactly you know, what my, what my role was here. And, and we had cattle. My grandfather's had cattle since the sixties and he had passed away by the time I came back, but I, I had the opportunity to step in and start looking after our cattle and, uh, quickly fell in love with, with cattle. And then, you know, with forages and, and eventually found my way to really have a love for soil health as well. So when you came back, you mentioned just then you found that love for soil health in that journey. Did you come back to the farm thinking, some of these more progressive ideas or were you thinking I'm going to do it like we've always done it? So I would say that I've always been a little outside the box. You know, I come from a kind of an organic ag background, sustainable ag background, and even permaculture. So really thinking, you know, about things from a more of a long-term perspective as opposed to a a maximum model, short-term, you know, gain from those mindsets. Now, having said that, you know, when I came home, I wasn't quick to make any big changes because I wasn't an expert at any of those things. And so I really had to spend some time here and figure out what part of our existing program I wanted to maintain and what were the things that I needed to change in order to, in order to, to live a life here and make my mark on the farm. So, Oh yeah. When you came back, Describe the farm to us at that point. Sure. So, and we still, we row crop my family. I have about four full-time row crop employees. So we, we farm about a thousand acres of peanuts and, and corn in rotation. And then we had, we had a few hundred beef cattle and we were retaining stockers. We'd wean our calves in the fall after peanuts were harvested, retain those in a feedlot type scenario and feed them corn, corn silage and soybean mill take those cattle up to seven to eight weights and then sell them in the spring. You know, with the first run up in corn around 2012, I sat down with an economist and we thought, well, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to, you know, run this expensive corn through these cattle. And so I stopped feeding in that traditional manner that year and haven't, you know, kind of never, never turned back, focused more on winter annual production. You know, I live in a zone that really can have something growing about 12 months out of the year. And that's when I met as my education kind of unfolded through academia and extension and networking peer to peer and and meetings to mentors, I really got involved with genetics. And that's when I slowly started changing the herd makeup to the types of animals that I thought would, would optimize, you know, the type of management I wanted to employ. And before we continue down that path, just a little bit, Let's talk about where you're located. I'm about an hour, 15 minutes north of the Florida line in the central part of the state, just a little east of central. I'm about 35 minutes east of Tifton, Georgia. Tifton's on I-75. That's the coastal plains. So we have, uh, you know, predominantly sandy loam soils. We are in the Bahia Bermuda belt below the fescue belt. We are firmly entrenched in the Nat zone. So if you come visit me in the summertime, be prepared to, you know, use your mouth to blow air at the gnats that are hovering around your face. Okay, very good. Just give everyone an idea where you're located. You talked about there when you started making that change in 2012 and you're looking at what you're doing. You mentioned a focus on genetics. 
how did you identify what you wanted and what, what was your base herd you were working with? Sure. Yeah. So the base herd was a real traditional Angus, Angus cross genetic herd. A lot of Sim, Sim Angus. Grandpa had been using Sim Angus bulls for the past oh, yeah. probably 10 years. And they did, you know, they, they were great for his program. They were pretty growthy. They had, uh, you know, a good combination of muscle and fattening ability. Uh, and they did, they did well in our feedlot situation. It, you know, it was an effective program. It just wasn't something I was very passionate about as far as, you know, kind of maintaining this the status quo. I, I was, you know, I, I came to this actually from a eating standpoint. You know, one of the reasons I, when I moved back home, I wanted to open a a farm to table restaurant and I wanted to supply, supply our beef. And so from, from a, you know, a chef and an eating perspective, I wanted to make really good, high quality grass finished beef because, you know, my early studies told me that I believe that, you know, grass finished beef is is a little bit better for you than, than corn fed beef. You know, I think beef in general is, is a good, you know, nutrient dense product. I don't want to down anybody's product, but I was really looking to produce a superior grass finished beef and serve it to my customers. But as I, you know, went down the rabbit hole of uh, everything there is to learn about, you know, cattle and grazing and, and soul health, uh, I had to, I've got to put the, the, the restaurant thing on the back burner. So that got me interested in the type of cattle because I finished some of those first cows and, and it was hard. I mean, those, you know, those were frame six on average females, frame five to frame six females. I had steers that didn't, and I was also really interested in a proper finish. So full brisket, fill, tail rump fat, you know, I wanted, I wanted to produce kind of a superior steak product as well. Call, call me quixotic. But some of those, some of those steers didn't finish until they were 15 to almost 1600 pounds at around 20, 25, 26 months, you know, met more mentors and, and come to understand the landscape of genetics. I recognized that I wanted to take that frame size down a little bit, concentrate more on the straight British breeds, you know, and, and, and really easy fleshing animal. And so that started my journey. Well, you mentioned there, why British breeds? So, you know, the British breeds are cattle that have historically been used more either single purpose or dual purpose, you know, for meat and milk, as opposed to a lot of the continental breeds, which a lot, oftentimes were also used for draft. You know, the, the muscling of the continental breeds makes them a really good cross for, for our feedlot situations and for efficiently making a big carcass to hang on the rail and also to grow aggressively. But, but the British breeds were the Angus, Red Angus, Devon, you know, Her Herefords even, they, they typically can marble and fatten on grass as, as a group. You know, I mean, there's certainly, you know, a, a smart person has said and people re-say all the time, there's much, as much variation inside a breed as there are between breeds at times. But that was o overarching, you know, we started with Black Angus genetics for more that older type, you know, that kind of original Angus type. I started, you know, my, my first foray into that was meeting a breeder in West Point, Georgia named Ed Oliver of Oliver Family Angus today. Today, Spencer, his son, still is running that program. And, and I bought a bull from Ed and really liked what they did for me. And I came back the next year and I bought all his bull calves to raise, to, to develop and sale and to use, you know, the bulls on my program that, that I wanted to. And so 
kind of developed, you know, that was one of my first, you know, relationships with uh, someone I would call a real breeder. And, and that kind of got me started in the road of, of grass genetics. And as you started down that journey and you're picking out bulls that, that fit that model or, or those features you're looking for, did you just, did you continue with your base cow herd or did you bring in some heifers as well? I did both of those things. So I didn't want to throw away, you know, 40 years of environmental adaptability. I had, you know, even though I was attempting to go in a different direction than my grandfather, you know, he was a good cattleman. He was a successful cattleman. And so while there were things about the home herd, I did not like docility being one, udders being another. You know, there, there are certainly things that we selected against and managed differently, but I had a lot of respect for the fact that, you know, he had been selecting in his environment for a long time. So, so grab, you know, the, the, the grand, well, actually I was about to say the grandchildren and great grandchildren of his herd are still there, but actually some of his cattle are still there. I had a, I had a 22 year old cow that actually got on a trailer earlier this year. I was going to let her die on the trailer. And then when beef prices went to a dollar. Oh, it's like, girl, can you get on that trailer at 22 years old? So, and I, I've got probably an 18 year old right now, still, still cabin for me as well. So, so certainly something to be said for, for the, you know, those cattle that, that have lived and worked in our environment for a long time. And it's one of the things I preach, you know, as we are, as we are breeding, you know, saving animals off of those best cows in our environment and saving sons off of those best cows is the quickest way to move our program forward. So. But, but we also, like I said, you know, I, I also started a registered program. So at that time we were all commercial. So some of the first cows I, I bought were from Ed, actually. Ed, in fact, I think I was one of the first people Ed ever sold heifers to. He had been saving and building his herd up, you know, and really growing. And after a couple of years of buying bulls from him, I think he took a shine to me and sold me a few of, a few of, a few of his heifers. And, and I bought those for two years and that was the start. Him and another mentor, Bill Hodge. Bill Hodge sold sold me a small group of his cows as well. And so that, that was my start in the in the purebred Angus world. Two things there. I, I think the, you know, cattle bred to to your local environment's so important. You know, we've been doing this on a small scale for a long time. You know, I'm learning stuff all the time that I should have known for years. A couple of years ago I purchased some heifers that were trucked in. I knew better, but I needed some cows. I bought them. I have zero of them still in my herd. And I thought they were, they would work for me, but they came from the north and they were trucked in. I thought, we'll be okay. You know, I'll, I'll suffer a few losses, then I'll have some. No, I'm, I'm two years from that. And they've all been culled out of my herd for, for various reasons. We're, we're certainly put here on earth to learn our lessons, right? So the key is not making the same mistake more than more than two times. Right. Yes. Well, that costs me enough. I, I'll definitely think twice before I make that mistake again. And then the second thing, you got into purebred Angus. And when we were talking about British breeds a while ago, you mentioned some other breeds such as Devon or Hereford, or you could even go Red Pole or another. Why did you choose Angus? Was it because your grandfather had been involved in Angus and you were that direction or what contributed to that decision? Sure. It was more about relationships. If, if Ed Oliver had had Herefords, I probably would have bought Herefords, you know, so it was uh, recognizing um, a breeder. And, and this is another thing that I often tell people is, you know, and we can get to this late in the later in the conversation, but, you know, 
when you're getting started in this, find people who do what you want to do well, uh, especially those who are in your environment and learn as much as you can from them. And so I had a lot of respect at, just after a short time with Ed, had a lot of respect for how he went about making breeding decisions and his program. And so, you know, the, my mentors were the people who got me started in the Black Angus world. Now, as I uh, have more seasons breeding under my belt, you know, I'm continuing to refine heat tolerance because the one thing, you know, I've recognized is that, you know, British breed cattle are from Britain. They're not from South Georgia. So even though we've been selecting for those and Ed had been selecting for those for, you know, uh, a few decades in, in Georgia, they still, you know, are only so adapted compared to, you know, the heat tolerant breeds. Which, which is where, where I've eventually ended up is, you know, doing some crossbreeding efforts because, you know, after, you know, nearly 15 years in this industry, I've recognized, you know, as, as my customers are looking for more commercial type cattle than registered cattle. I don't, you know, I'm not trying to sell a, a $3,000 or $4,000 bred heifer. You know, I'm trying to create heifers or cattle, you know, bred cattle that can go to a commercial producer's farm and make them money, you know, and that's, you know, one of the challenges is you, you want to invest in good genetics, but at the same time, you know, cattle is not a high margin business. And so, you know, I'm trying to set up my program to produce cattle in a way that, that I can, I can create some value for my customers, but also, you know, in not only the price, but also the work I've put in, in order to provide them a product, hopefully that's going to go to their place and thrive. Oh yeah. Very important. I'd love to continue down the path of cattle breeding more, but let's jump over and take just a little bit of talk about your operation and how you're managing your animals. And then we'll jump back because I've got questions about that heat adaption and, and we'll go from there. So when you look at your operation, tell us how you manage your cows on it. When I got home, it was set stocking. It was, you know, it was a, a five strand perimeter barbed wire and and ponds and a uh, one working facility at the end of the 800 acres. Right. And so, and so grandpa, you know, would, if he wanted to work cows in November, you know, in September, he's starting to get them moving in the, in the, in the right direction. And, and, you know, the, one of the things I struggled with when I got home was the cattle had been worked, had been pushed with trucks, had been mishandled, had been yelled at. And, and, you know, and they had been trained to be problematic. And so, you know, the day, the days we would work cattle would just be stressful to everyone. We would be dog tired the next day. We would be sore, you know, and after doing that for about two years, I told my employees, I was like, give me three years and we will not be doing this again. And, and that was a matter of culling. We started by culling the cattle that tried to kill us when we worked them. And then, and then we called the cattle that tried to jump out. And, uh, and finally we made our way to the point where we'd gotten rid of our problem, our troublemakers. And once we'd done that, you know, we started using bulls that were docile, you know, to, to, to try to work that into to the genetic component. But also we just learned how to handle cattle in a, in a way that, that did not make, make our jobs any more difficult. So, you know, and, and really learning about animal husbandry and animal handling techniques building, you know, better facilities. We started doing cross fencing. I started moving the cattle on a more regular basis, you know, and when the cows see you on a daily basis, they, they, 
they come to understand that you're not the wolf anymore. Um, and so, you know, and so to answer your question today, we, you know, have subdivided our farms, you know, we have perimeter electric coming off of that barbed wire so that we can hook in, you know, mostly anywhere. And we've strategically subdivided those farms with either single strand or, or two strand poly or sorry, permanent wire. And then also we have poly wire that we can further subdivide those farms with. And, and we're really flexible. If I'm traveling, we might set stock for a week or even two weeks, depending on the type of pasture and, and what our goals are at the moment. And then, you know, in the wintertime, if we're grazing winter annuals, we might, we might put them on for three hours and pull them off at lunch. We certainly try to build a lot of flexibility in our grazing systems. And the more value we have in, in our grass, so, it, so for instance, if we invest in annuals, we really try to maximize utilization and, and minimize waste on those pastures. On some of our lower, lower pro- productivity pastures, you know, there's times where I want my cattle to, to be able to be more selective because performance will increase. And so I'll give up, you know, some of the soil health of building properties of having a high stock density for just the ability for say those two and three year old you know young cows to be able to kind of pick and choose to be able to thrive a little better you know during a tough time right which all that makes makes sense as you as you're setting it up as you're using it one thing i want to touch on is that training your cattle to go through your facilities to to train them to be around you because you know the cows are reacting to you the big eye-opener for us. We were loading out steers and they went into, and I wasn't home. I was at, I work off the farm. So I was at work and of course dad thought he could do it. And those, those yearling plus steers ran in, hit the front of the trailer and started back out and he couldn't get the gate closed and it knocked him down. And luckily no one stepped on him and he walked away fine. But right then said, we got to make a change. This is ridiculous. Like you said, we, we started paying attention to docility of the bulls we were purchasing. We started handling our cows different. Dad still is a little bit, he's, he's a little harsher with the cows than I am. I can work them. It's amazing. I just go out there. I enjoy the whole day. It doesn't matter how long it takes. It's just a nice, calm thing. And I've trained those cows and they've trained me likewise. And it just makes all the difference. Like that day after, I'm not. I'm still sore because I'm just out of shape, but it's not for the same reasons. You know, it's amazing. Once you develop good cattle handling skills, it, it is enjoyable. It is enjoyable to, to move cattle in an oh, efficient yeah. manner, in a quiet manner. And to, you know, it's an art, you know, it's a, it's a science and an art. Uh, and it's amazing how much more enjoyable your life is when you develop and hone those skills and, and have a team, you know, a team that can also employ those because one person will wreck, you know, a, a working job. Uh, and, and, and often, you know, uh, I'll send people, I mean, there's times where I don't want an extra person because, it, you know, especially in a ring, you know, I mean, like cattle, Cattle work a lot better with the minimum amount of people necessary to do the job efficiently. Now, I'm talking about your your forages there. You've already talked about Bahia grass and Bermuda and cool season annuals. What annuals do you like to plant? And I'm I'm making the assumption here, and I probably should never make any assumptions. Are you you pasture drilling? You putting that on some no till land, or are you tilling some land? How are you getting those 
cool season annuals in? We do a little of all of that. So we still do employ some tillage because we double crop some of our cash crop ground. And with our, with our corn, we do minimum tillage, but with our peanuts, unfortunately, the, the peanuts are kind of the, the weak link in our cash crop program where we're still doing pretty heavy tillage. And that's the, you know, my long-term goal is to get away from peanut production. Presently, it is a, it's kind of a cash leader for us. And so we still, we still grow peanuts. We're, we're good at it historically and they're still in, and and it's it's still part of the process. But so on that cash crop land, we still do uh, employ some tillage. And uh, the the main advantage of that for us especially is timely, you know, getting a stand up timely and then being able to graze that in November. So one of our, uh, you know, uh, I think it's really important for people to understand their forage chain. So from, you know, from January to December, how many days a year can you be grazing? What are the forages that fit that chain? And you know how many, and how can you piece together as much grazing days as possible? Because the, the the easiest way to spend money is for you to have to feed your cows, and and not just supplement, but feed your cows. And so, so for us, you know, funny, the, the most challenging time isn't December, January, or February. We do a really good job with annuals during that period. It's actually September, October, and then the beginning of November, because while our summer perennial species are still alive and kind of kicking, I mean, you know, we've had, we've, we've even had November, December's where Bahia was still growing. The quality declines greatly. And so for, you know, and, and that's one of the challenges too, with weaning weights for us, you know, and I've, I've, I've even, you know, gone back and rethought my calving pro my calving dates you know i've always set up my calving dates based on you know that high level of nutrition that i'm trying to provide that that mother at calving and post calving for the next you know uh, 60 days but but honestly but honestly you know having those 6 month and 7 month old ca- uh, calves uh, on real declining forages it's a, it's a tough time for us to put on weight you know they're still coming off heat stress the dams are are starting, you know, to milk less because of the quality, and and we don't, you know, in, in our in our journey to wean our 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 perennial forages off of commercial fertilizer, you know, we we really we don't fertilize bahia grass. I mean, and and the only the only real fertility we apply is to our annuals and to our our hay ground, and some of our hay ground we will graze as well. So our improved Bermuda grass, we've got TIF eighty five hybrid Bermuda. It's it's great if it has water and nutrients it's great but it requires inputs you know and and th- those inputs could be chicken litter i mean we get local chicken litter and i try to use chicken litter when it's you know affordable at, at i mean there there's times where i can spend you know i only need 30 units of of commercial fertilizer i still use commercial from time to time but we're very thoughtful about our usage so much of our program is about how can these cows you know, optimize our environment. I mean, I think that that word's very important. We're not trying to maximize production. We're not trying to starve ourselves into a profit. We're trying to find that middle ground of, you know, uh, how, how can we have these cattle select for themselves to thrive in this environment and raise a, you know, a, raise a decent calf, you know, and get bred back on time year after year after year. So 
So we got a, a little bit off the subject of forges, but that was in, in essence, you know, kind of a lot of what's going on at, in my thought process. You know, with our winter, with our winter annuals, uh, we almost think about it too from a fall grazing perspective, a winter grazing perspective, and then almost like a full season grazing perspective. Because, you know, on some of my row crop ground, I'm going to have to get back in that field with corn in March. And so if, if I, if I know I'm doing that, I don't plant a lot of, I don't plant any ryegrass. I don't plant much vetch or I plant less crimson clover because I know I'm not going to get a lot of growth out of it. If I'm going back in peanuts or if I'm following that winter annual with a summer annual, then I'm really going with kind of that full season winter annual mix. So I'm going to bring ryegrass in the mix. I'm going to go heavier on my crimson clover and my hairy vetch. I'm going to go, I'm going to, you know, continue to add things like forage or um, spring oats, potentially cereal rye. And even last year was the first year we experimented with spring pea. And spring pea is another one of those legumes that, you know, I don't see the production. I've only got one year in my belt, but typically crimson clover and hairy vetch are the two, uh, you know, uh, uh, legumes, winter legumes that really we feel like we get our money's worth out of. The other ones I add for diversity. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in, in, you know, trying to piece together a mix that yes, does focus first and foremost on forage production and quality, but at the same time, we want to add smaller amounts of forages that we feel like are going to benefit, you know, that, that complex biology, you know, trying to rebuild, you know, our, our soul biological life. And, and just to follow, just to follow up our fall mix, if we can get in there early, especially if we have tillage is predominantly brassicas and uh and and uh spring oats spring oats really come out of the ground quickly wide blade good regrowth we've had really good luck with them so well i was just going to ask you about brassicas see if you planted those and utilized those in your program so you beat me to it more so in our clean tillage we find that the small the real small seeded brassicas struggle in an overseeded operation now the daikons and the bigger seeded brassicas do pretty well we also have a time limit, you know, if, if it's after mid-October, late October, we really don't see the fall growth and we, we don't get our money's worth as much as if we can get those in in late September, early October. One thing that, that kind of jumps back to your location, how's the rainfall or your precipitation year-round? Is it pretty spread out? Do you have a dry summer? And not only are the weather forecasters progressively worse, but, uh, but I understand why I think our historical, you know, uh, I think for a long time, October was our driest month, which is good for peanut harvest, not good for, you know, trying to get winter annuals out of the ground. Weather patterns are more varied. You know, I don't have 50 years of weather data to say that just, just anecdotally from the last 15 years since I've been home, unpredictable. I'll, I'll say, you know, we haven't, since I've been home, we've probably only had one real extended costly dry period. And I think that was back in, gosh, was it 13, 12, 13? A lot of the country was dealing with it. It was, I think it was after Texas had, and you guys had dealt with it. But we, you know, we enjoy 42 to 48 inches of, of rainfall a year and it spread pretty well throughout the year. So it's a good place to have a cow-calf operation. You know, our grass, I mean, if anything, you know, our grasses can get a little washy, you know, just from our soil type and the amount of rainfall we get and, you know, and the, but I'm not complaining. Yeah, it doesn't sound like you need to. We, we don't get 
you know, we're probably on the lower end of that rain range you gave there, but we definitely have some rainy periods and some dry periods, which, which presents some new or not new. It's been going on for centuries. Some, some other challenges here yeah. as opposed to where you're at. Of course, you've got your own challenges there. You know, and, and our soul type is, is real sandy. So, so we certainly dry out quicker than a lot of the heavier soil regions. And, and, you know, I don't necessarily have a, a firm drought plan in place because of the amount of rain we get on a regular basis. I am thoughtful about not overtaxing, you know, my land in a dry situation. So if we have to feed hay in July, we'll feed hay in July. You know, you know, uh, we haven't been to the point where I've felt like we've had to actually destock. And, and there's times, there's, there's times too where we will use summer annuals almost as a, as a, you know, as a redundancy plan so that, you know, if we feel like we're approaching being overstocked, we'll have those to kind of fall back on. And they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not a cheap redundancy plan. They're probably cheaper than bringing hay in and feeding hay. So when we talk about your cattle management, what has, has been some of your challenges? What we do as ranchers and as farmers is not, it's not easy to execute 365 days a year. You know, not only are we dealing with the unexpected and fixing problems on a daily basis, but we are also asked to wear a lot lot of hats. And so I think even, you know, while I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on a lot of the major concepts and and the how-tos, executing that consistently 365 days a year is, it can be challenging. And so, you know, and, and also you would think just raising one species, I would have made it simple enough for myself. But unfortunately, I have, I've got three farms and we have, you know, nine to 12 different herds we manage from our replacement heifers to our, you know, our bulls that we sell, our bull battery that we, you know, we keep our registered red Angus cattle, our registered black Angus cattle, our commercial cattle. So, so we have, you know, different management groups. We feel, and there's times where, you know, like right now, all my bulls are running together. I have 50 bulls in a pasture, you know, and that's, you know, not perfectly ideal for those long yearling bulls. They probably would benefit from some type of, you know, improved protein forage, but we make sacrifices in order to accomplish the whole, I think, you know, and also to, to recognize that, you know, there's, there's only so much we can do, you know, labor is a, obviously, you know, one of the most expensive parts of what we do. And we tr- try to do a, lo- a lot with a little, you know, I'm a, I was a one man show for quite a while and I would steal from the row crop help from time to time to bale hay and to, you know, to help, help work cows and that kind of thing. Today I have, you know, one full-time helper, which allows me to, to do, to focus more on marketing, to, to travel more to conferences, to, you know, which we, we market at some of those as well. And to really think more about the working on the business and not working in the business, as they say, and um, ranching for, ranching for profit. And Dan, great conversation. We're going to come go back to cattle and some of that discussion, but we're also going to, you know, do our overgrazing section where we take a deeper dive into to some aspect of your operation. And we talked a little bit earlier and we were going to talk more about heifer and bull development. 
You know, one of the things I recognized as I, you know, started my networking experience and and gaining mentors is is uh, one of the things that I find found fault in the in the registered business in the C stock business was I felt like a lot of those people were trying to maximize production and produce, you know, really big muscled bulls at 14, 16 months and, and really chasing maximums ch- and, and mostly chasing terminal trades. And, and honestly, that's a good thing for a lot of people. I mean, a lot of breeders just need a terminal bull and they just need to sell all the cows, calves, you know, into that feeder market. But I think, you know, there's certainly a percentage of the population that doesn't completely understand about the separation between terminal and maternal genetics. And also, I think, doesn't see a clear picture sometimes of like what some people claim is maternal versus, you know, what I believe is truly maternal. And we can all define that differently. But I think if anything, you know, the the way I've set up my program to try to raise cattle is to... It, to almost do the opposite. And, and, you know, we, I have to be careful about that as well, because if you really make a cow work a, in a low energy environment, she will work in a lot of places, but you can also remove the milk production and make the cattle too small for a lot of environments. So, you know, if we've done anything, we've probably overchallenged our cows at time, times to, in order to pressure fertility, and in order to, to, you know, find the, the type of cattle that will work in our program. We don't, we do use annuals. You know, we, we really try to have these cows, uh, grazing as many days of the year as possible, but we, we offer, you know, almost zero supplement. I mean, right around weaning, we have used whole cotton seed before, but besides that, we really, we have, it's hay and forage. And it's, like I said earlier, a lot of that is unfertilized as well. And so the protein content's lower. You know, bahia grass is all already kind of a low energy, washy grass. But what I find, you know, the, the value I see in in doing in raising cattle this way is it does take longer for these heifers to get grown. We, you know, we find that our cows really aren't probably at full maturity until they're close to four years old. But we we hope, and I'm still, you know, we're still young in this process. We're still only about. 11 years into probably my active breeding program, we've, we've found so far that those, those cattle, as they go to other people's farms are doing quite well. Uh, and that's the thing, like, you know, if you, if you go to a, a kind of a mainstream breeder to buy breeding stock, watch what they feed their cattle, watch, you know, the type of supplementation they're doing and match the type of program you want to have, you know, with your, your source of genetics, you know, and, 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 you know, there's money to be made in all different fields of cattle production. So there's not a right way and a wrong way. You just have to recognize what your management wants to look like and find models for, you know, if you're still building your program, you know, for, for how, how you can do that. And then, you know, potentially take advantage of someone else's progress, especially if they're in your region, you know, that you spoke earlier of, you know, bringing cattle from another region, your area. I've done that as well. You know, I thought, you know, when I got started with this, that I, I really wanted some of those old line Angus genetics and it brought them in from different places. Some of those cattle have worked fine. Some of them were so old line that they didn't like Georgia at all. They marble on grass. Great. But, but, you know, if the cows don't get rebred because they don't slick off in time, you know, that they, they can suffer with bulls too, especially. And this is one of the things that, that is so obvious, you know, when you come to my place, 
we don't try to sell a lot of bulls. You know, we are a little bit in that Pharaoh model of, you know, we put a lot of pressure on our cattle from a fer- fertility perspective. So we can only support a certain amount of growth. So our bull customers are people who want to raise grass finished beef or want to save replacement heifers, especially in this kind of Southeastern region. I mean, that's, you know, yep, that's, I, you know, I try to, that's where I feel like my genetics are going to be most valuable. Having said that, you know, we grow them pretty slow. I don't really even show bulls. I mean, if you come to my place, I'll show you anything here, but I don't really market them until they're around two years old, you know, coming into that second winter of annuals. And we find that about that time at about that 20 month to 22 month period, they really start putting on muscle. They really start, you know, they're cresting, you know, pretty aggressively. Uh, and they, they, they just really look and fit like bulls at that period. And they have enough athleticism and growth to where we feel like, you know, we're comfortable putting them on 30 cows. But the advantage of, of not feeding those bulls, of letting those bulls make those bulls work in the environment is that you see the top end, you see the bottom end, and you see the middle. And feed is not covering that up. And so if you want, you know, the best, if you want the best bull I have, there's, you see the two of them out there and, you know, they're a little more than the middle ones and the middle ones are a little more than the, than the bottom ones. It's, it's really a good operation. It's a good, it's a good way to separate the genetics that really thrive in the environment from the ones that, you know, just are doing okay. And when you, you talk about your heifers growing slow and, you know, not seeing that really that mature size reaching till four or so, are you still calving at 24 months or what's your philosophy on getting them into production? It's funny you ask that because it's something I've been thinking about hard over the last six months. And and part of this was kicked off by, I just started about two years ago, two or three years ago, crossbreeding with Cinepol, you know, a, a heat tolerant breed breed that came out of St. Croix. My, when my first Cinepol, a half Cinepol, Sten Angus cows came, you know, into production and I exposed them. And I typically, depending on how many heifers I want to sell, I will expose those heifers for as little as I've, I've exposed them for as little as 30 days. And I've exposed them probably for as many as 75 days. If I want to sell more heifers, I'll expose them for a little longer. You know, I choose the cattle out of, I choose the heifers out of the cattle that I want to save daughters out of. And, but so much of my business is marketing bred females. So depending on how many I'm looking to, to, to sell in a year, I might leave those bulls in a little bit longer. But last year, last year I had about a 47, 48 day breeding window. And what I found was, is that my, my half Cinepol cow actually, even though I felt like size wise, body condition scoring, they, they were, you know, neck and neck or just as good as my straight Angus cattle, my baldy cattle. They didn't get bred up at near the percentage that my straight Angus cattle did. And, you know, thinking that through, you know, I would have thought that the heterosis, they would actually got bred at a higher value. But this Cinepol, from what I, from, from what I believe based on physically what I've seen, you know, they mature a little slower than the British breeds, you know, testicle development is a little bit, you know, behind from a time frame perspective. And I, and I think, and, you know, Cinepol breeders out there, you can disagree with me because I'm not a Cinepol breeder. 
but I, I think that what we're seeing is a little later maturity in those animals and even in the half-bloods. Yeah, I re-exposed those animals uh, to calve at two and a half and every one of them got red, you know, and I didn't, I didn't do anything differently. It was just a, you know, a time period, you know, there's been times where I have kept heifers around that didn't get bred to calve at two and a half or three and then market all those. And I've, I've, what I've seen is in my program, they typically wean a heavier calf, you know, when they're calving at a later date. So, you know, in, in my head now, you know, I've all, the gold standard has always been early maturity, early maturity, early maturity. And we, and we, and we've really, really prided ourselves on the fact that we have, you know, straight bred cattle that, that will get bred at 50% of their adult weight. I mean, like really light. Unfortunately, though, you know, you're going to have a higher percentage of dystocia. You're, you're not going to wean as big a calf. And they're going to, you know, uh, if we don't do anything special for those cattle, they're, they're going to have a tougher time getting bred back to cabot three. And then also, and also just struggle to get grown. So the jury's still out for me. I, I'm, you know, I'm trying to decide if, if I want to do a better job of managing annuals and providing them with, you know, a, a, better intake, uh, better, you know, uh, energy. If there is a strategic supplementation that I would like to employ without propping the cattle up, or if it's just a matter of potentially having those cattle calve at two and a half. And, you know, I heard uh, Jaime uh, Elizondo talk about, you know, the further we get into the tropics, the, the more those cattle are really set up to calve later, you know, and I think, I think, I think that I see a little of that in sub, in, in, I mean, we're right at the verge of the subtropics here in South Georgia. I think I see a little of that in the, in the, in the quality of our forage and, and really trying to make these cattle work, you know, just in this kind of forage only environment that, um, it's just more difficult. I mean, we've, we've had as high as 88% of our heifers get bred in a 30 day period. But they were oh, wow. in re- they were in really good flesh condition. You know, our average is probably we probably average about two cycle exposure, um, about forty to forty five, forty to fifty days, and and our probably average breed up is around eighty two, eighty four percent. So, which that that conception rate so much better than what we've been doing, and we're well actually that's what led us to to look at some other breeds from what we were originally using was because we were getting into our cattle were late maturing and we were spending so much to get a replacement heifer going. And then, then we were having half of them breed. And so, so we're playing with that. We, we don't have the answers. I don't have the answers for much, you know, we're trying to figure it out. So it's really interesting to have that conversation and find, find out your thoughts on it and where you're going with that. It's, it's funny because I've, I've definitely changed thought over time, you know, and, and I used to think calving it too is the only way, like that is the only way to provide enough fertility pressure to, to be this pushback against all these programs that have propped up, you know, fertility with inputs. But, but I, I think it's just more nuanced than that. I think every program has that question to answer for themselves, you know, based on their management, their forages and, and what their goals are. And one thing you mentioned there, you mentioned about bringing some Cinepol in. And earlier in the conversation, you had mentioned about getting a little bit more adaptability for heat. Is that the direction you went to bring that in? Did you look at any other directions? 
Yeah, I did. I've seen, I haven't, honestly, I didn't probably do the full due diligence that I've done in the past with my bringing Angus and Red Angus in. I pretty much relied on relationships to steer me towards my experiments with Cinepol. Uh, I had a close friend and breeder in Tennessee who had success with Mark Sanders and Millertown Cinepols there just outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. And I went up and visited his farm. Um, he's a longtime active member and past president of the Cinepol, one of the National Cinepol Associations, and found some cows in that herd I really liked. Moderate you know, some, some real moderate cattle that I thought would complement, you know, a lot of my breeding goals well. And, and, and was fortunate that the cattle in the herd that I really admired and had that phenotypically really fit my bill, I had the opportunity to buy sons out of both of those cows. And so that was, that was the start of my breeding. I'd considered Mashona. I'd been around, you know, just a few Mashona cow, cattle and bulls. Their coat quality is just something else. I mean, like I was really blown away how oily and like shiny slick those cattle were. I was concerned that the Mashona cattle might uh, downsize. A lot of the Mashonas I've been around were small cows and, and I did not need to make, I'd put enough pressure on my cattle that I didn't need to make them any smaller. You know, I, I mean, my cattle fit great in a kind of a grass finishing environment in the South, especially. But if anything, I wanted to make my have just a little more power and growth so that people who are just selling into conventional marketplace would also have, you know, uh, something that uh, that would work for them, which is why I went with Cinepol. The Cinepol were, were, you know, more of the size and type that matched my cows. I recently also, so I had the opportunity to go back to the grass exchange last year at Fort Worth and met Watt Casey, who's become a close friend of mine. You know, Watt's uh, family, Casey Beefmaster is one of the original three foundation herds of the Beefmaster breed. And Watt and his family have been, had one cycle breeding program since 1977. So they have exposed their cows for 25 days since 1977 and called or sold everything that didn't get bred, which I you know, still, you know, at some point people value the program so well that they would pay a premium for those, those cattle that came up open. And so what they, I don't know how long they've been doing it, but they'll re-expose those opens over a period and then they'll sell all those bread. And, and Watt said they almost all get bred uh, for a premium even, right? You know, I mean, once you've established a program like that, and they're, they're, they're hardworking, moderate, good uttered, high IMF, no nonsense cattle. I probably wouldn't have just chosen Beefmaster had I not kind of fallen in love with his herd and their, and their program. I, I bought a handful of cows and a bull and I'm, I am also experimenting with uh, crossing Beefmaster, not only over my commercial cows, but some of my registered cows as well. I really want to take some of the, some of those best black and red cows and makes them just dynamite F1s out of them. So kind of excited about that future and, and seeing those, seeing what those new calf crops will be like. Yeah, that'll be exciting to see how that goes and, and just follow your journey on. Uh, Dan, it's time for us to go ahead and transition to our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests and our very first question. What's your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? 
I, t- I tell people, especially in the Southeast, if, if you could only own one book, it would probably be Southern Forages. And it's it's a textbook, but it's it's kind of the Bible of, of I would say, of Southern grazing. And there is, it's just a complete education of, uh, of forages, forage type, planting regimens, and, and raising cattle on grass. Uh, and so, if if I could only have one book, it would be it would certainly be Southern Forges, but but it is pretty region specific. I mean, there's something in it for everyone, but but you know, but from Texas to Virginia, I think it really I think it's really a valuable book. Very good, very good, excellent selection there. Uh, our second question: What is your favorite tool for the farm? I would say polywire i would say the ability to subdivide manage and move cattle in a in a very efficient and cheap manner has really changed the game for thousands of breeders across the country you know and especially in the east where our paddock size is smaller and we have a lot more dense forage swords it is it's an indispensable tool it would be one of the last things i would give up yeah polywire has done so much for me and I mean, there's times I don't like it very well, but for the most part, I like it. Yeah. You know, the, the ability to not only improve production, but also just training cattle. I mean, once you have, you know, a group of cows used to following you, they are easier to live with for the rest of their lives. This just amazes me. And I've done this multiple times now, and I've only done it in the last year or two. I can, I can pull out in a pasture with my trailer and some poly wire and I can load cows that I need out of there, which if you'd told me even just 10 years ago, I'd said, you're crazy. I can't do that. It's amazing. These cows that, that we've for my, our home place here, we have all the pastures firmly subdivided and I don't use much poly wire here. I've got lease places and I use poly wire. So that's, that's one of the big differences, but I'm just amazed. Of course, the cows are calm. They're, they're used to me being out there and it's just every time I leave there with some loaded, I'm just, I want to call my wife and say, guess what I did? And she's like, really, do I have to hear about it again? But it's so amazing to me, polywire and a trailer and calm cows, I can do anything. Our third question, what would you tell someone just getting started? I listened to the uh, Michael Vance podcast on the way up here, and, and his answer was pretty much exactly mine, which is create relationships, find people who, and I said it earlier in the podcast, but find people who are successful doing what you want to do and become friends with them. Visit them at their farm, ask questions, develop these, this, these, this, these networks and these relationships. They'll be invaluable. There's also, in a lot of states, there's for me, I, I use extension aggressively. You know, so much free education out there or very cheap education. You know, one of the most valuable things I did and one of the most expensive things I did was a ranching for profit, the week long course. If you, you know, if you're not at the point where you can afford, you know, a full week long course, they do short courses as well. And a lot of times those are sponsored by, by, you know, soil and water conservation groups and national groups. Having a relationship and really the, I think, a lot of what ranching for profit and ranch management consultants have has to offer. If you're new to this, look into them. They they have a, an incredible uh, curriculum and, and just an amazing set of uh, set of instructors. And they don't pay me to say that either. I just had a great experience. To be honest, I only hear good things about going to their conference. People coming back, saying what they 
they've learned and what they're implementing and how things are going, they just, that's just essential to their success. So they, they are definitely doing good things. And you said conferences, which reminds me of, of that as well. So that's another thing that I've done is I started going pretty aggressively to different conferences. So the American Forage and Grassland Council, the National Grazing Lands Coalition has one every three years. Grassfit Exchange I've been going to since it was a Gabe Browns, you know, over 10 years ago. Great group of young people. You know, if I could only go to one, it's probably one of my favorites just because there's so many outside the box thinkers and so many, you know, thought movers. So a lot of opportunities there, even, you know, some of the cattlemen's events, depending on your state, you know, th there's a, there's a lot of resources out there, but nothing beats boots on the ground, you know, at a ranch near you with someone who's successful in making their living. Like Michael said, someone who's making their living doing it. If that's what you want to do, you know, it can be a hobby. There's no, there's, there's nothing wrong with with this lifestyle being a hobby, I, I tell people my, my cows are my blood pressure medicine. You know, I mean, this isn't a ho hobby for me, but when I come home after traveling, I mean, after seeing my family, the first thing I want to do is ride through my cows. An excellent advice there, Dan. And Dan, lastly, where can others find out more about you? Sure. So I, I have a website, deepgrassgrazers.com, G-R-A-Z-I-E-R-S. And also I'm relatively active on Facebook. So you can definitely check me out there. Feel free to call, email, text, come visit. I have people at least once a month come to the farm. So I love talking about cattle, riding cattle. It's a passion of mine. So, and, and I try to help everyone who comes to me. So, and if you buy an animal from me, I'll answer the phone every time. Well, wonderful, Dan. We really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us today. Cal is a lot of fun. So thanks a lot and keep this up. I, I just discovered your show. I love it. And I'm a, I'm a new follower. So, well, thank you. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Grazing Grass podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer in their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at community.grazinggrass.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for past and future episodes. We also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey. So if you're interested, fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the Be Our Guest link. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. 
Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.